0: Welcome back and happy belated new year. Today, we are excited to bring you our third episode of EP Architect. Just a reminder, if you like what you hear, please remember to rate and review so you help other emerging professionals find us. If you don't, let us know. We are now available anywhere you get your podcasts. This month, to piggyback off of our last episode with Zachary Goldstein and Ellen Abraham, who both have started businesses offering products born out of their design careers, we will be interviewing an architect who created a business offering a useful service to industry professionals in New York City. Today, we will be talking to Scott Reynolds, founder of UpCodes. You may be using UpCodes every day, but do you know where it started? UpCodes brings together a multidisciplinary team to create an innovative approach to building code management. Two founders came together in 2015 to launch the platform. Scott's background is in architecture, having worked in New York City and Hong Kong at firms including RMJM, Hassel, and KPF. Garrett, our CTO, brings experience from working on neutral nets, imaging processing, and backend development in leading AEC technologies. And now let's start our conversation with Scott. Welcome, Scott.
1: Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Where are you joining us from? So I'm actually calling you from London or just outside of London in the UK. So quarantining and sheltering in place in a little bit more open area and we can get out for walks and get some fresh air. So a nice break from San Francisco and uh, in New York, I imagine.
0: Oh, very nice. And just in case you hear sirens in my background, just know that I'm, I'm joining you today
1: from New York City, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that all too well uh, while I live there.
0: So what are you doing in London? Have you moved so ha- there?
1: No, I haven't. Uh, just temporary. I have some family out here and I think very similar to New York City and certainly my experience, but San Francisco apartments, despite the price of them, are quite small. So decided to get a little break from the shoebox apartment and come out this way, taking advantage of everyone being remote. Because obviously, as everyone's experiencing, everyone's kind of dispersed. We were co-located in in San Francisco, but now I've kind of gone all over the place and just yeah, taking advantage and getting some fresh air while we're here.
0: Okay, very nice. How long have you been there now?
1: About twelve hours. So oh, wow. <laughs> so I I, I, I landed. Uh, Do right, I hear right, jet lag? Maybe a little bit. You will probably later on in the episode. (laughs) Hopefully not too much.
0: All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your history, and we'll get to the point where you started UpCodes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think from a young age, just moved around quite a bit, really in different countries and within those countries, different cities. So originally born in Canada, moved to Ireland, then to Trinidad and the Caribbean. Back to Canada, actually, the UK and London, Hong Kong, and then eventually US for college and some of the professional experience. So moved around quite a lot, but ended up at Syracuse University for the Bachelor of Architecture program they have there. So really loved it. Like fantastic experience. Graduated, went to the UK to do an internship, and then on to Hong Kong, where I worked for a couple of years. And I think you mentioned in the intro, but started at Hassel, an Australian firm, moved to KPF, an American firm worked in their Hong Kong satellite office for a little bit and then transferred internally with KPF to the New York City office. So that was the first full-time position in New York City was with KPF. So that was kind of like my career arc or trajectory. And it was really that experience and working at KPF where we started up codes and kind of like that launch pad. And very much like the last episode with Ella and Zach, it started as a side project and then got a little bit more and more traction until it eventually became a full-fledged company.
0: Okay. Well, that's quite the life journey. I mean, Canada, Ireland, Trinidad. (laughs) What brought you to all those different countries?
1: So we traveled as a family and my dad worked in finance at a Canadian bank and they had a very global footprint and had offices and locations all around the country. And I think that's really why he wanted to join the bank was to get into an international company and he certainly got what he's looking for. They moved around every three to four years. So we had a, a pretty high cadence in terms of moving. And myself personally, I think it's six countries that I've lived in, but I have older brothers and they have more countries on their, uh, their resume. But uh, yeah, they, they've always been moving quite a bit. They've actually now settled in the UK where, where I am now, but uh, it was really driven by my, my dad's work and kind of the family would uproot and move to these new locations. But in in a nice way, you you get a nice exposure to, you know, not just different countries, different cultures, but also different buildings. So I think that really sparked and inspired the design and architecture career from an early age, seeing what do buildings look like in cold climates, what do they look like in much, much warmer climates than in Hong Kong, warm and humid climates back to the US. So you get a pretty diverse experience and uh, view into these different uh, building types.
0: And did you enjoy your architectural education?
1: I did, yeah, it's um as we all know, like pretty unique, pretty intense, but really, really enjoyed it, and hopefully we we can touch on this a bit later, but I think it really use you up and gives you a very diverse skill set that can really be applied in many, many ways now, obviously, a lot of us go on to become architects and and that's our career for for the majority of our of our lives, but um we've seen so many people, not just ourselves, but leverage that same skill set and put it into different use cases. And for myself, that's getting into tech and designing products and, and doing user interfaces and user experience design. So it's really drawing on a lot of those same principles and experiences we learned in architecture school. So to sum it up, I, yeah, I, I loved architecture school. I would absolutely do it again, even if the intention was not to become an architect. Hopefully you do. But even if you don't, it's still a great education. I, th- I think it's absolutely worth it.
0: I agree. So you said that your first full-time job was at KPF in New York City? Is that right?
1: The first full-time in the U.S., but first full-time was actually Hassle in Hong Kong. Um, So an Australian company.
0: So KPF, when you were living in New York, what were you doing for them? And is that where you started the idea for UpCodes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so I might actually back up a little bit to Hong Kong because it's really like very similar work. So while I was working for them in Hong Kong, we're working primarily on projects in mainland China mostly Southern China, like like Guangzhou and Shenzhen. And we had um, the architect of record on the ground, like the boots on the ground there in mainland. And we were really just the conduit of information to send it back to the design teams in New York City. So that's really where the design, the heavy lifting on the design happened. It's 12 hour time difference. So we would kind of bundle up all the information send it over to the design teams in New York and they would work on it while we were sleeping we would get back into the office get the designs and then pass that on to the client or boots on the ground in the cities so it was really just acting as this kind of mediation and, and I think a lot of architecture is mediation at least between different parties and is very much focused on that on the communications and funneling information and more often than not that had to do with building codes and what are the kind of parameters and what are the the things we have to design to in these different jurisdictions in China. Now, it's obviously challenging because they're written in Cantonese and, and Mandarin. So there's a translation layer. And then when you get the translated version of it, it's still difficult to understand. It's just as hard as it is here in the US. And there was certainly like a lot of frustration. as was like, this, this is a very inefficient way to design. There's so many layers of broken telephone, middleman and translation layers. So eventually I moved to the New York City office and started to get some more exposure to Domestic projects here in the US. And lo and behold, while I had hoped they would be a lot more simple and easy, the layers of regulation are way more intense than they were abroad. So I think it was like a, a waking up moment for myself where I thought I could move back to the US and have an easier ride when it came to regulations and learning building codes, but it really wasn't. And we were dealing with physical books within, in our library, having to deal with updates, errata, or changes to those codes. We had an eclectic set of PDF saved to a company server, or we could go to government uh, websites. So, and on top of all this, relying on building code consultants. So it's just such a, I think, a frustratingly inefficient process. And, and that's really what sparked it. I said, I said hey, look, like, there's got to be a better way to manage building codes. And hopefully software can, can actually do that. Now, I should note, importantly, this is probably like the sixth or seventh idea. You know, the first five, I sent it over to my brother, who would eventually become my co-founder. But at the time he was working as a software engineer at PlanGrid. So another kind of construction, well, quote unquote startup, but they sold to Autodesk last year, I think, or the year before. So he was working at PlanGrid as a software engineer. I pitched him those first five ideas. I was like, hey, you know, here's an interesting concept for for architects. And what do you think about building some software around this? And he said, absolutely not. That is way harder than you anticipate, way harder than you can imagine. And it's gonna be really difficult to pull off. So I don't think it's a good idea. And it was a good reality check for me, kind of like a sounding board. But it was the this, this sixth or the seventh idea that I actually pitched him, which was building codes. Let's bring a little bit of structure and tools for architects to actually navigate and manage building codes. So I, I think I invited him over for Thanksgiving in New York City Our parents, again, were in the UK. So we did what we could for Thanksgiving, not great cooking, but we certainly had some time to hack together a prototype and what would this thing actually look like? Could you consolidate these building codes into a unified database and then create a search engine around that? And the prototype, it was pretty rough around the edges, but it worked. And it was kind of inspiring and encouraging enough that we decided to actually take that as a very serious side project.
0: And is your brother educated in architecture? I mean, aside from being your brother? As well?
1: So not at all, actually. Um, okay. So he's coming from a physics and biology background. So he was in doing a PhD at UCLA in kind of like this weird intersection of physics and biology, but basically mapping out how does the human brain transform over time? And does that give you clues for Alzheimer's or dementia later on in life? Like, can you detect that early on before it becomes... A significant issue. So that was his research. It was a lot of machine learning and neural nets to actually figure out and take these huge data sets and, and wrangle and deal with these data sets. But he would eventually drop out of that program to join industry. And that's where he joined PlanGrid. But that was his first exposure to construction. And I remember when he was, he was interviewing with a couple of tech companies and tech startups, he gave me a call. He's like, hey, I have this interview with, with a company called PlanGrid. Like, what do you know about it? And can you give me like the 101 on architecture, engineering, and construction? Just give me some high-level notes. Like, what are the keywords? What are some buzzwords? You know, what is schematic design? What is design development? What, what is the drawing set? Is that blueprints? You know, some very basic things. So that, that was a really couple phone calls that were quite fun to get him up to speed on those things. But that was very much his first exposure to it, was that job. Obviously, when he was working at PlanGrid, you know, a lot more exposure They got to go to the building sites. They got to see what this construction looked like. What does it take to put a building together? And then obviously dealing with hundreds of thousands of drawing sets and drawing sheets. So that was kind of like his trial by fire and his learning experience there. It it certainly helps with what we do today because he can talk shop and understand the the users and what we're working on.
0: And work on computer programming as well, it sounds like.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, 95% of it on, on the programming.
0: And you said that you had maybe six ideas before UpCodes. What were some of those early ideas that you had?
1: (laughs) You know, I I wish I remember, and I was actually thinking of this pretty recently, I think like a couple of weeks ago, and it's in a notebook. And to be very honest, like I'm pretty bad with all my old sketches and and notebooks. And it's somewhere in one of these volumes and I have like a big bucket of these things. And I need to to go through and find that like one, you know, or like that one page that consolidated. I remember... Of course, a for the biography,
0: list. you got to keep those <laughs> <I wish>. things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'd be a pretty comical list, but you can see them like crossed out as it's going down and generating new ideas to put across them. But um, I'll have to dig it up one day. I just haven't been able to, uh, to find it.
0: So you, you talked a little bit about what UpCodes is about. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? Like you told us where you got started with the idea after working and realizing that there could be a better way of people getting all this information. Why don't you tell us where Upcodes is today and what the bigger idea behind Upcodes is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of put a bookend between where we started and today. So we started with a very basic prototype, what we call an MVP. So minimum viable product, just to basically test out an idea and Get it into people's hands, see if it's useful. And at the time, we probably had a couple hundred people on the website actually using it and doing code research on it. Now, if you fast forward to today, there is half a million people on the site a month doing code research. So, it just the kind of the road has been really, really interesting, and then constantly kind of growing and expanding in scope. But to back up and explain, like you know, where we are today and where we're where we're headed. So. Very simply, like we, we just want to create a structured workflow to look up building codes and apply it to your project. So the first step for us was consolidating a database of building codes and pulling together information, regardless if it came from government websites, PDFs, physical books, building a system that could actually intake all this data, clean it, parse it, and put it into a unified database online that's searchable and to actually update these codes. And so when uh, amendments or erratas come out or new editions of the code come out, we could actually insert those, sync it to the cloud, and then the end users just have an automatically updated code library online. It sounds very simple. Hopefully it looks simple to use, but actually took a long, long time to build. And, and we're, we're constantly expanding code coverage. They're going to new jurisdictions, getting amendments, integrating those into the codes, understanding like does the code landscape look like in any given state, expand to cities and counties. So that was the first big step. But in terms of like where we're headed as a company, and we've started you know, down this path a little bit, is really trying to make that as user-friendly as possible. So moving away from reading the raw text of the code and starting to go to a very user-friendly interface to put in inputs or answer questions and then get your results and answer. So an analogy is TurboTax. So, I mean, very annoying to use But at least we don't have to look at the IRS documents. And and that's kind of like how we view where compliance and what it should look like in the future. It's basically take me through a choose your own adventure, answer a bunch of questions, go down this, this flow, and it'll do the calculations for you and map out the sections of code you actually have to follow. So we've actually started to do that, especially in the last 12 months. So now we have the ability, if you put in some information about your project, It'll do calculations like heights and areas, egress, fire resistance ratings, plumbing fixture counts, and doing all that math for you and, and kind of creating that code sheet—an automatically generated code sheet. Now it's certainly early stages, and this is something that will evolve as we go forward, like over months and months, and even over years. It'll it hopefully gets more and more sophisticated and more and more coverage of the project. But that's kind of the north star. We're we're just working towards making the friendliest possible way that anyone can access and read the code and understand the code and apply it to the project.
0: Now, let me ask you, I mean, I've been a user of UpCodes myself. Okay. Oh, great. (laughs) And I think it's great. Even when you Google like a code section here in New York City, honestly, your website is the first thing that comes up like before the buildings department. (laughs) Like if I Google the (laughs) link. So, (laughs) but, you know, I mentioned that it was in New York City, but Upcodes is in other places too? Is it all over the United States?
1: It is, yeah. So New York City is where we started and got our initial traction. And like, I, I was based there at the time and we did all our user interviews and we're working with a lot of firms there locally. So that that is certainly like where we started, but we've since expanded across the country. So I think we have maybe 43 or 44 states at the moment. And then within some of those states, smaller jurisdictions. So like San Francisco, LA, Chicago, and Illinois, I know there's a couple other smaller like counties that we do. So we kind of went from a statewide focus, and then now we'll descend in granularity to more and more cities. Like New York, for example, is a, is a great example. As you get, you know, from New York State into New York City, it, it's just you know it becomes totally immense. different. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really trying to map out those changes between the, the different levels of governance
0: and the parts where you were just talking about where you can actually put in your project information is that a part of the paid membership because there's like a a membership fee that's associated with upcodes right
1: yeah right so there's kind of like two halves of of the product there's the free tier which you know doesn't need any account the idea of that is just to provide 100% free unhindered access to building codes and and that's a big tenant of the company is open access to to these codes and to the information. So that's kind of like the free tier is all there. It, it's hyperlinked together and all the documents are there. You can browse and you can read it. Now built on top of that foundation are the premium features, or kind of like that paid tier built mostly for kind of like the power users or the professionals in the space because we do have a lot of homeowners. In fact, sometimes they use the premium features, but more often than not, it's the architects, the GCs, the engineers, plans, examiners, building inspectors doing the premiums here. And that gives you just a lot more functionality to actually parse through the code. So this TurboTax workflow, that's one example of those features in that page tier.
0: Well, it's pretty cool. I use it. <laughs> Pretty oh, regularly. Great. So <laughs> I'm a fan. Oh great. I'm one, yeah, of, great I'm one of those half a million users per month.
1: <laughs> and I will say, um, it's really hard to know what to build. And the only reason we we can kind of prioritize the product roadmap in terms of like what we build first and what we build second is talking to folks like yourself. So we try to open up those lines of communication as, as much as possible. So, you know, if you have any feedback, if any of the listeners have feedback, just write us. Just shoot us an email and like we love chatting. So like our roots are in architecture and it, it's coming from the design and the aspiration is to be as useful a tool as possible to architects. So we can only do that if we get the feedback. So, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll say if, you, if there's ever something you want to see, let us know. We'd love to hear that.
0: All right. Great. And we'll definitely have your information in the podcast notes. So. Oh, great. <laughs> let me just ask you, I mean, a lot of people have... All kinds of ideas, especially creatives. You know, we're always thinking about how to make things better. So, what actually was the catalyst, let's say, for you to definitely see the need for this and go for it? Because it could have just been a conversation over your turkey with your brother, and that's the farthest that it would have gone. So, what actually allowed you to achieve this particular goal? Of getting this started?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a a great question. And, you know, I I think it really arose from a personal pain point. And I think the best products and companies do that. So, where, you know, the founder or the person actually starting the company experienced that pain point or that the problem firsthand. So it was kind of just solving my own problem. And in in doing it, being like, hey, you know, if I can search these codes and I can access it in a digital format, that's way easier than what I'm doing today. And and it's going to, just help myself, and I, I think that's probably the best place that you can come up with ideas or or start. And it also gives you the opportunity to "quote unquote" dog food a product. So kind of kind of a weird term. Some people are familiar, some not. But it, not. <laughs> it's, so I have no idea where that comes from. But basically, it means use your own product so that you can give yourself feedback. So, for instance, if you're working on like an instant messenger or an email client or something like that, or or if it's hardware, if it's furniture or something. If you can actually use that product, you'll have a way better empathy for the same people you're going to then go on to sell it to. So it gives this way or much faster feedback loop and iteration cycle if you kind of like understand that pain point. So I think that was a major component was coming from myself. But then getting beyond that is just getting the initial attraction and then getting it into other people's hands. Like I mentioned, minimum viable product, just make the fastest thing that will allow you to ship it and get into somebody's hands. And then you can get the reaction. And honestly, more often than not, it's going to, you know, they're going to say a million things are wrong with it, but at least that gives you direction. And now you know where to go and how to improve it. And after a couple iteration cycles, hopefully it gets to the point where they're quite happy with it and they start using it. And then they'll start giving it to the friends, maybe their friends have feedback and you keep iterating it from there. But I think like that initial traction is really, really important. And I could actually, I don't have the exact quote, but I think it's Paul Graham of Y Combinator said something like, it's better to have 10 happy customers than 100 like modestly happy customers. And I think that's really important early. And it's basically validating the idea. like How happy are the people using the product? And if they're modestly happy, you can you know spin your wheels trying to sell it, but it'll never get the traction it actually needs. So we're always a big believer in that. And then, yeah, just, just making sure we're getting good validation as, as we built it out. I will add too, I was thinking a lot from the last podcast you did, but the concept of like a side project, like when is it a good idea to do a side project and how does it scale from there? And I think early days it's it's really really advantageous to do a side project because you have a safety net. If it doesn't work, and and it's kind of a scary thing if it if it's not going to work, but if you have a full-time or part-time job or you have some way to support yourself and you know, just quite frankly, like pay the rent it's way less scary to actually try these things. So if you have a couple hours at nighttime or on the weekend, if you can just play around with the different ideas, see what gets traction, what doesn't, it's a very safe kind of playground and launchpad to actually do some of these concepts.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. But do you have any other entrepreneurs in your family? Like, was there anybody else that you felt like, well, you know, this is where I get that little sort of, passion to even start a side hustle? Because again, I mean, plenty of people have ideas, they talk to their friends about it, they talk to their family about it. And then that's about as far as it goes, you know, was there somebody who you sort of had as a role model
1: to propel you forward? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, great question. Um, So I mentioned earlier, my dad was working at a financial institution and was moved around to different Locations, but he spent, I think, 30 years at the same company around 30 years. So he's very much like a company man. So doing the entrepreneurship track is, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum from that. But fortunately, like a very close role model was my other brother. So I have two brothers, and, you know, the eldest of the three, together with his wife, started speech therapy clinics in London for kids. And they have two locations today. And, and this was a while ago when they're first starting out. And I remember the dinnertime conversations when they were talking about you know, finding real estate to open up the clinic and hiring therapists and meeting with schools to, to strike up partnerships and, and help them out with you know, the kids that, that needed some therapy and, and help in their speech development. And just seeing all of the kind of behind the scenes of running the business. And it, it might look really glamorous in, on the facade where you see like, oh, this is, you know, you guys are doing a great mission. You're doing a great thing. But seeing the reality of like the finances and 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 balancing the books and and hiring and firing and Getting was was really and all of it exactly. <laughs> I, I think it was just a great exposure into that and and really kind of inspiring to go down that path. And and of course, I I should also mention just reading like I was reading tons of books at the time of, of other entrepreneurs and hearing about their journey and and what they had done and especially the hurdles. I, th- I think that's a really important thing to kind of understand, whether it's a side business or a, a full fledged business, you're going to hit hurdles and it's going to be difficult. but just goes through it and kind of seeing some of your role models or people that you read about or listen to on, on um, podcasts or audiobooks, just hearing that they have or they are currently going through those same challenges has been massively helpful.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It sort of lets you know that you're not alone in this, right? Like, especially when sometimes you're side hustle or your business might not be going as you imagined it would be. (laughs) It's good to hear these other stories about how it took somebody like 10 years to finally get off the ground, you know, with their business. But I imagine that you probably feel the same way after your seventh idea that was crossed off the list, you know, right (laughs) before Upcodes that it's about trying again, just continually going through the process and, you know, starting over again,
1: starting over, you know. And there's a, I think it's called survivorship bias, or it's a basically like a topic or a concept that a lot of the people that have gone on to become very successful look back and, and think it was quite easy. But the exposure and insight that you don't get is from the 95% that fails because they just didn't get the platform to actually talk about it. Right. Um, so you, you get this kind of skewed, understanding and view of these people that have gone out and started and it's like, oh, it's incredibly easy for them, smooth sailing all the way to growing this business. But that's just not the reality. And we kind of earlier days, we went to Y Combinator, which is kind of like a tech-focused incubator, kind of like accelerator program. They bring a bunch of companies together, you get a little bit of funding, and they introduce you to a bunch of experts and they kind of like give you advices as you grow. One of the most valuable things from that experience. There's, a, I think, 110 or so companies in our cohort was just talking to other companies and understanding and seeing the struggles they go through. And maybe it's something you've gone through. You can shed some insight or some advice or vice versa. More often than not, they're going to give you advice on something you're personally yeah. going through or the business and and they can give you advice. And I, I think that, that network, that supportive network is just invaluable to have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're first starting out, you know, but... That doesn't mean that that's where it ends. You know, I think that with every sort of evolution of your business, you sort of need different levels of support. Because once you're in it, I mean, you started up codes in 2015. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I, yeah. I mean, now, six years later, you have a different level of support that you probably need. <laughs> and, right. and a different level of support that you can give people who are just starting out as well.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and there's sort of these different phases of, of growth that the project right. or the company will go through. And and you're absolutely right. For each phase, you're gonna need different advice and different advisors and counseling at each one. You're gonna you're gonna hit different challenges, whatever it might be. And you know, when you're getting your first customer or your first 10, it's gonna look very different than getting, you know, maybe your your five thousandth to ten thousand. It, well, it it looks million. <laughs> um, well, those those are users, so that comes with other issues like scaling problems and making sure your servers don't light on fire. So you need your own set of advisors and and experts there, where you're saying, hey, how how do you create the infrastructure that can support that kind of traffic and do it reliably? Which is something you know it's totally foreign before you actually get there and and, and do it. Um, yeah. So I think the learning is really important. Like you'll never stop learning. Like you're going to hit new phases, new challenges that you never knew could be a challenge or were a thing but you're going to have to deal with it. And and advisors and your network can get you through that.
0: Yeah. And let me ask you, since we're talking about it, how do you handle those new levels? I mean, you know, going up to half a million users per month on your website, how do you handle that? How big is your team and who handles what? Is this your only job right now? Are you working on anything new, you know? Like, yeah. how do you handle that? Yeah, so, how do you handle your scale at this moment?
1: Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. So the current position is probably like one and a half full-time job. So it's it's like more than, than I can handle. So so certainly doesn't afford for any side projects, at least at the moment. But it's really interesting when you think about the team size versus who you're serving. And we always track this metric. And unfortunately, it's it's kind of fallen by the wayside. But it was how many hours does our team put into building the website versus how many hours are people actually spending on the website mm-hmm. and early days, you know if you have like five team members or four or five team members, maybe there's like thirty or forty hours being spent per day in aggregate between everybody building the product, but maybe only ten hours of user time or fifteen hours of user time on the product so eventually that you know the ratio got closer and closer to like 1 to 1 you know maybe 30 hours a day spent developing the site and then 30 hours of time for user but it was a really significant moment for us where that actually crossed the threshold and there was more user time on the site than we were actually putting into site per day and then you know you're becoming leveraged like your time is highly leveraged like you're you're helping people and you're providing a service at a ratio that that's higher than the time you're putting in and it's become really fascinating like when we look at new features like, I don't know what that ratio is today. It's, I think it's higher than, you know, it's certainly higher the amount of time than the time we put into the site. But now what we measure is, okay, if we make a speed improvement to the site or some kind of UX improvement, that'll save, let's say like one second per page load or half a second per page load. But if you times that by hundreds of thousands of page loads, it actually adds up to tens of hours or even hundreds of hours. So in aggregate, you're like, okay, we, we just shipped that update. No one's going to necessarily notice because it's a half a second, it's at one second, like page load improvement, but now we can give people back say like you know hundreds or thousands of, of hours of their time, so maybe they get home earlier, maybe they, they're more productive in their job, you know incrementally in when you zoom out and look at the large picture you're you're making a, a big change and I think that's one of the things I love about tech products is that it scales really well, and you can you can ship a feature or a product that impacts a lot of people,
0: yeah. And I think that also in talking about maybe people might not notice that half a second time save, but I'm sure that people would notice if there's a half a second put on the time of like reloading or things (laughs) like that, you know, so in the opposite way, people would notice if this site is too slow or is doesn't give me the information that I need or, you know, whatever it is, then people would definitely notice and stop using it, so I
1: think it's a testament that it has grown in scale
0: by so much over
1: the years. Yeah. And it's a great point because not only is it your own site, it's other sites, it's other products, you know, right. in your industry or not your industry. And I think the kind of general progress of some of these products has gotten faster and better and better. You know, the general population's expectation is getting higher and higher. And rightly so, like we have better tools that are disposed on, we should be making better and better interfaces. And and products and they should be getting faster and nicer and easier to use. But it is interesting because like, even things like Spotify, you know, becomes incredibly easy to play a podcast or a song or, you know, all these different websites we use. So it's interesting when you see the expectations rise everywhere. Now, when you look at architecture and you're dealing with Autodesk software, they're not necessarily pushing forward that component all that much. So like, it does leave a lot of opportunity to kind of like, the delight and, and surprise, uh, which is always the goal. But it is interesting when you see from other industries when when there's really big advancements.
0: Yeah, some people like myself might argue that places like buildings department are not on that upward trajectory either of making things more efficient. But that's a conversation for another day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you guys are you guys are spoiled in New York City. You have um, probably one of the most yeah highest funded the departments in in the country. Yeah, but, uh, it,
0: when you're using it, that's why we go to websites like UpCodes because <laughs> using their system is quite frustrating actually <laughs> and very old fashioned sometimes. But again, I, this is not a complaint Podcast this is a podcast talking about upcodes and the beauty of something like upcodes
1: so <laughs> well I'll just uh, ch- chime in really quickly it's it's interesting because the industry is so fragmented and difficult and complex that I don't think any one player can tackle all these different things so when you have a buildings department the onus on them in so many different areas is, is pretty high so I think they often more often than not get spread pretty thin and and sometimes yeah. have challenging budgets like especially out of New York City like very challenging budgets. And, you know, everything from the permitting to the building inspection to the online submittal portals and and things like that. Like, I think they, you know, they're not tech companies and they have to cover all these different categories where if we just focus on one thing, we can try and do it really, really well. I think that's what people need is, is just, you know, different companies, government agencies or whoever it is to focus on these different workflows and then ideally make it really easy for the workflows to talk to each other admittedly, everyone in, and us two could do a way better job at that. Sorry, I know that's a bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to no, no, throw no. it out there. Because sometimes I feel really bad for them. I'm like, you guys have a really, a really hard job. job. I, everyone do does. have
0: a this. tough job. It's true. But like you said, if you focus on something, you can then be able to do it really, really well, rather than having your focus spread out, you know, through various things. So was that or a part of your initial sort of thought in sort of getting together a business strategy for UpCodes? And is that still a part of, you know, your mantra or the mission
1: of UpCodes is to focus on this one thing and do it really, really well? Focus on New York and let's do New York really well. And if it doesn't work in New York, it's not going to work anywhere else. So yeah, so so it's very much, Going down that ethos of do one thing well, so it worked in New York, and then we said, okay, let's scale this out to the rest of the country, one state by one state. And that's the online database. But when it comes to things like the TurboTax kind of workflows, the code calculators, we do it in a very similar way. Say, okay, let's focus on building heights and areas, plumbing fixture accounts. Let's just ship it, and let's just do those, and and let's let's tweak it, and it's going to be you know. The scope is limited today, but if we can validate it, if people are interested in it, then we're gonna invest way more into it and then start to expand it. But we don't wanna, you know, do a little bit of everything, but not do one thing all that well. So that's right down to the core. It's very much one of the tenants of the company.
0: Okay. You mentioned that earlier on you joined Y Combinator. Is that the name of it? <laughs> and one of the guys from Y Combinator is he's a guy who was appointed to Reddit or something like that.
1: Yeah. So Reddit was a YC company. So it was started in Y Combinator. So a lot of these companies that have recently, not that Reddit's uh, IPO'd, but like Airbnb or like Alex Ohanian and blanking on the other guys, Steve Hoffman, I think, or Huffman. But yeah, the two founders, yeah, were the guys that took it into Y Combinator and then they scaled out, built a team, got fundraising. And then I think they actually sold it. And then got back into it and now became CEO again. But yeah, they they were there from the early days all all the way at the beginning.
0: Okay. And and was this where you got, let's say, initial funding for UpCodes? Was that a part of that program teaching you how to get funding for your business as well as giving you support, other kinds of support that you need in order
1: to build it up? Yeah, for, for sure. So they give you kind of like your first check, the first investment into the company. And for a lot of people that, this is really helpful for us, but it lets you, you know, leave something from a side project and then, you know, go full-time on it. Because all of a sudden, like, you have a little bit of funding, you can pay yourself, and you can have a paycheck, and you can pay rent, not from Very a important. different job. And, you know, for us, and going back to the side project, like, we probably jumped from our respective jobs a little too early. And, you know, I had my, my modest architectural savings and, and ran that down quite low. So like when we did get into Y Combinator, it was a big sigh of relief because they give you that first little bit of of funding. But then also prepare you to go out and get external funding and to other investors um, in the area. So that was a whole another component of of learning and going back to the conversation about scaling yourself and learning new things. Like that, you know, we never fundraised before. So it was certainly a boot camp of how do you talk to investors? How do you pitch a company? How do you bring on and choose the investors that join and on what terms do they join? And everything like that is a great example of something they provide, but really just any network or folks that have done it before can help you through.
0: Mm -hmm. So what kind of advice would you give to young professionals who have an idea, but they may not know how to get started or they may not have the wherewithal to actually get started? What kind of advice would you give them in
1: going after something that they have on their mind? I would highly encourage people to do it as a side project. So there's kind of like two ways you can go. You can bootstrap and do it as a side project, or you can look for investors. And those investors might be like family, colleagues, or institutional investors, venture capitals, or or angels. So the investment can come from a variety of sources, but no matter where it comes from, the minute you bring it in the door, there's external expectations and you now are... You know, of course, like you retain control of the company, but you are answering to other people. So it does add a layer of expectations and therefore stress sometimes. So I would highly encourage, you know, to start if you can as a side project, if it's, you know, not capital intensive, all the options are yours. You have all the time you want. You can iterate. It's okay to fail. You know, the only person you're disappointed is is yourself. Um, So I would highly encourage going that route if you can, and then delaying the investment if ever to where you're comfortable with it. And you kind of know where you want to head and, and then you can bring the investors on and they will, you know, bring a layer of overhead and quote unquote, like bring down your neck. But that's, you know, something to consider for sure is like your the independence is, is can be very valuable.
0: Mm-hmm. So having a solid business strategy is something that you feel like is like one of the foundation, a part of the foundation of starting your own thing so that you can know where you're headed and know how to branch out to get there?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. But just as long as you're willing to throw it out, you're, you're gonna have a hypothesis, you'll get out there, you're gonna learn a lot of new things that are gonna invalidate some of those hypotheses. And as long as you're willing to be nimble and change it, you know, treat it like a living document, I, I think it, it can really help. I think it really forces you to think through the different functions which is really helpful. But if you're not willing to depart from that, then it become, become more of a limiter. It makes you too rigid. That You can't adapt, you can't pivot, and you can't change from your original thoughts. So I think create it, but you know, update it. Update it every week, update it every month as you get new information, new learnings about the market, new learnings about who you're going to sell to, who are the users, and things like that. So I, th- I think it goes in tandem.
0: Mm-hmm. As you said, staying nimble with that idea and mm-hmm. flowing along with whatever
1: comes your way. In pursuing it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, f- for us, like we had the North Star vision has actually remained like pretty intact, but the steps along the way have been remarkably different, you know, and yeah, the ability to stay nimble and, and to kind of divert as you're going down this decision tree is, is really critical. And I know f- for some other folks like that North Star has changed pretty significantly, but in a really healthy way that led them to a really great place.
0: And do you still practice architecture?
1: So not formally. So of course, like helping out where I can with friends and family. So not not currently practicing. But fortunately, I do get a lot of exposure, you know, just chatting with users every day and understanding like what are their designs, what are their their challenges, and what are the features. So I, I get to live vicariously a little bit. Like I definitely miss my days, you know, actually doing the design and, you know, in Revit and, and CAD. But... Yeah, I don't do that today, but fortunately, get to kind of work very closely with the people that do do it. Do you think you would ever go back to it, like full time, or? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I could I could see it going either way. You know, on the one hand, I love the scalability of of tech products and and being able to iterate and ship very very quickly. But then on the other hand, I absolutely love architecture, and maybe there is some combination in between. Maybe I can get back to design, but it kind of brings some software experience or thoughts into that process and see if there's any kind of interesting or yeah fruitful combination of the two. So yeah, unfortunately I don't have a concise answer there, but but maybe <laughs> like a marriage okay. of, of the two. Yeah.
0: Maybe Autodesk in the future might have uh somebody coming for them uh-huh. <laughs> with new
1: products. <laughs> Well, they are the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And it would take many, <laughs> many people with many great <laughs> products to, to make a dent in, in their universe.
0: And what do you see as the future of UpCodes? Maybe what your ideal is and what you realistically
1: <laughs> think. Yeah. So I think from an ideal's perspective, ideally we can create a completely intuitive interface where you're answering a couple of questions and it's going to generate and, calculate what are the requirements for the building, but then on the flip side, do the validation. So become the spell checker for the design. And we actually spent a little bit of time there, and hopefully we'll we'll get back into this, but looking at a BIM model or a 2D drawing and starting to flag potential code issues in that drawing. Now we know what specs and codes you need to design to, and now we can validate, have you actually met those in the design, and then document that and bundle it up for permitting. So that's the long-term vision. And, and actually, I think in reality, like we've made strides towards that, but there is a lot of work to do and it's gonna be many, many years to to get there. But um, yeah, so I, I'd say like, I think we'll get there, but it's gonna be incremental steps along the way to to kind of bite off bite-sized chunks that are feasible and that we can actually pull off that hopefully in aggregate will build towards this large.
0: To that point, that's interesting. Do you ever get pushback from anybody within the industry? about what a codes has been doing, like code consultants or, you know, expediters? I don't know.
1: Um, Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think when we do get pushback from, actually both those folks, so code consultants and and expediters, sometimes architects, I think it's mainly because maybe we just didn't communicate it well or they misunderstood or, you know, something happened. But I think their expectation of what we're working on and where we're headed is an existential threat to, Either work or something like that, but but it's yeah. but it's not a, at all. Like we view it as kind of like accounting. Like accountants use software, or lawyers use you know software that makes them more efficient at their jobs and lets them focus on more exciting and creative components of that job. And very much our ambition is to become kind of like an aid in your workflow. Like you're you are as the professional, the centerpiece, and we're a tool in your tool belt that helps you do your job better. We're not trying to like replace you. I think sometimes there's, a, and I think rightfully so, There, there's a fear on the self-driving car area where it's like, hey, if there's self-driving cars, what happens to the drivers? And I think that's a legitimate fear and something that should be considered and, and explored. But I, I don't think that, you know, we're very different from that. Like we're not, our ambition or the reality is is that we can't replace any of, any of these jobs. It'll just be like accounting software to accountants or legal research software to lawyers.
0: Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what UpCodes becomes into the future. I mean, as I said, I use it pretty regularly. So
1: I'm looking forward to these new features that you're planning on rolling out. And I'll I'll say to you, like, we're excited to see where it goes too. And it just in the vein of staying nimble, like we just have no idea. We're like, where will we be in a year or two years? And, you know, what do the users want and what? do they want us to build? Like, it's always a, a system of unlocking more and more feedback. So we also don't know. So we were, we're excited to see where we'll be in a year or two from now as well.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. So now I just have a few fun questions, lighthearted, have nothing to do with business. If you're up for it, I like Absolutely. to ask them. But first, before we get started, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you felt like you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to?
1: No, I think I think we covered the vast majority of it, especially when you consider like for the listeners of side projects. And of course, there's like a lot of like professionals and the private side interface with the government bodies and things like that. But that's just getting down into rabbit holes and could be a whole episode into itself.
0: A whole series onto itself.
1: So. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> and you don't want me to start talking about that because then I'll, I'll just bore you into four hours.
0: Well, okay. So I'll get started. Do you prefer pancakes or waffles? Oh, I
1: didn't know the question's going to be this difficult. I would go with pancakes. You sure? Final answer? You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but but I, I'm, I'm going to stick with
0: it. Okay, cake or pie?
1: Pie. Can I just throw in a fun uh, yeah. story there? When we hit a big milestone in the company, we, we tend to celebrate with pie. So that was an easy one. Uh, so it's like, you know, pie is all around or, you know, it's champagne or pie. So usually not cakes for whatever reason. So I, I will stick with with pie. What kind of pie? You know, whatever is available. Uh, We have like an awesome market nearby the office, well, at least during normal times when we're in the office. And they have a pretty good rotation. So they have all kinds of berry pies, pumpkin pies, apple pies. Is there always ice cream involved? There is. Always.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. What's your favorite genre of movie? Oh, interesting.
1: I would say probably sci-fi. I just like how it it kind of like challenges some of your assumptions and, and forces you to think outside the box and, and, and look at things a different way. I think I find them to be some of the most creative. Of course, it's creative yeah. moves all around, but I find more consistently than not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be creative.
0: Yeah, that actually makes sense for what you do. <laughs> do you have a go-to karaoke song?
1: I can say that I've never sung karaoke in my life. Um, what? Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've successfully avoided it for many, many years. On, and, on purpose, and, it sounds like. Well, for the audience's <laughs> uh, sanity, I just knew it, it would. It's just better if I don't <laughs> put it that way. Fair enough.
0: Our horoscopes BS are fascinating.
1: I think they're fascinating. I think I think they're quite interesting. And whether it's like you're shoehorning something into a description, it, it, it stimulates conversation, and it's going to lead to something interesting. You know, whether that horoscope was right or wrong, it's it's going to be interesting no matter what.
0: <laughs> I agree. Pineapple on your pizza
1: or no? Of course. Yeah, Hawaiian pizza, of course, <laughs> from an early age. Is Die
0: Hard a Christmas movie?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Is that up for debate?
0: <laughs> it is.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, and that's out of our control. That, that was from the TV programmers when we were growing up. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't choose that uh, to be the case.
0: It's a hot dog a sandwich.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I also didn't know that was up for debate. So that, that's interesting. I've never considered it that way. I
0: mean, two pieces of bread.
1: But they're connected. Sometimes. So I, I would. I would argue. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. I'd argue it's one bun.
0: <laughs> because sometimes when you cut like a hero bread, they don't cut it all the way through. That's a really sometimes. good point.
1: Yeah. So. Okay. You. You. You have me there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Last one: pecan or pecan?
1: Yeah, I. I, I go pecan usually. Um, me too. Th- this is one from growing up and moving around a lot. Like a lot of the pronunciation of different words, I tend to pick and choose from you know from different countries I lived in. So you'll find some some odd (laughs) pronunciations here and there.
0: So did you pick up any Mandarin or Cantonese when
1: you were in Hong Kong? So unfortunately, no. You know, not beyond the like the basics and the the pleasantries. So Hong Kong was a British colony until I think in the 90s. I might have that wrong. But until very recently. And a lot of the roads, even the signposts, have both English and Cantonese on them. And a lot of like the taxi drivers and, and places you go are bilingual. So it's almost too easy to get by without learning. Now, that's not an excuse, but, you know, if it was Shanghai or Beijing or something, I think it would kind of put you into the environment to learn. In in that case, Mandarin. But yeah, to to learn those much much more (laughs) in-depth.
0: All right. Well, that's all I got. Thanks for playing along
1: with our fun questions. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Me too. It was really nice meeting you and learning more about the person behind the website
1: (laughs) great yeah well we're always here so anyone please feel free to reach out
0: yeah and again listeners can find scott's information in the podcast notes and thank you again for joining us we hope you all enjoyed this episode of ep architect and stay tuned for the next one thank you again scott thank you